Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. Hi, my name is Joya. I am seven years old from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Joya, can you tell us about how you show the earth you love her? Well, what I do is I pick up trash and sometimes I try to uh, not use the car and bike or walk someplace instead and take hikes and walk around and look at the beauty of what Mother Earth made. Hi everyone, I am Neve, 11 years old from the beautiful Emirate of Dubai. Hi Neve, what is your favorite insect? My favorite insect is a ladybug. I am curious to know as to why is a ladybug your favorite insect? Tiny things can be so miraculous. If we see a ladybug, we feel that good things are on our way. They help farmers in protecting the plants from predators, which fascinates me. I get the positive feelings of happiness, beauty, joy and positivity when I see a ladybug. Hi, I'm Daniel Goleman. And I'm Hanuman Goleman. And you're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. In today's episode, we're going beyond emotional intelligence to discuss the other type of EI, ecological intelligence. The environment is one of the most urgent issues of the day. We begin looking at where we're directing our resources, not just our financial resources, but also our time, energy, and attention. What got me interested in looking at ecological intelligence was realizing that I had no idea of the actual environmental impacts of stuff that I buy and use every day. And I know that cumulatively, what we buy and use every day is destroying the planet. Plus, I've got grandchildren, and I worry about what their lives will be like as the planet continues to degrade. There's another part of it for you, too, I think, Dan. What's that? Well, it's, it's a thread that you've been interested in for decades now uh, about self-deception. So I've, I've been interested for decades. Actually, before I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, I wrote a book on, called Vital Lies, Simple Truths about 
what we don't see and don't know that we don't see. And I realized that our environmental impacts fit in that category. We don't know what they are and we don't see that we don't know because we ignore it. It's easy to gloss over. And so what that means is that we end up in a situation where we are continually supporting and buying into a system that has detrimental effects to us, our well-being, our community's well-being and, and beyond. And because we don't see it, because it's not an immediate uh, response to our actions, it, it's, it's obscured and, and we're just feeding the system. And in fact, our attention is misdirected. Advertising doesn't talk about you know, the uh, downside of the impacts of something we buy, the embodied carbon in a car. It shows you, you know, the, the car in a beautiful setting with a beautiful partner, having a wonderful time. In other words, the way the material world is marketed to us ex ex implicitly ignores what the negative environmental impacts are of the very things they're trying to sell us. By harnessing our fundamental needs and desires uh, to, to against us uh, in this instance. Yeah, there's a kind of judo, you know, the, the marketer wants to know what need or what sense of hollowness or emptiness or craving can I appeal to to sell this product to the most people? Uh, and they don't look at uh, what would it mean for us to be virtuous? What would it mean for us to be regenerative? What would it mean for us to make this product in a way that might restore the world rather than destroy the world? One way that I sum up what we're talking about is wisdom. What does it mean to have wise systems? Systems where all stakeholders, and that means everyone who's impacted by that system, have a voice and are regarded with dignity. Systems that have learned from the mistakes of the past and adapt in the service of the whole community, everyone in the system. Understanding that everyone is important and everyone is worthy of respect. Here we're looking at human practices and their environmental impact. What would it mean for us to approach production and commerce in a virtuous or regenerative way? This question is at the heart of today's episode. We begin today by talking with Scott Kling. Scott has deep experience working with renewable energy and product production of all sorts. Here's Dan and Scott. Uh, this is Daniel Goleman. I'm talking to Scott Kling, who's someone I respect uh, enormously, particularly when it comes to thinking about how to make a greener world. Scott is um, uh, someone who has expertise in design of products, in running a company, in dealing with supply chains, uh, not just uh, theoretically, but hands-on in, in Asia. Uh, and who has thought deeply about uh, new technologies and ways we can become greener. And um, Scott puts it really nicely. First, I'd like to welcome you, Scott. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Uh, Scott has uh, outlined really the assumptions of our discussion. One is that 
in order to motivate a change to more eco-friendly products, we have to realize that there's a kind of a push-pull relationship between consumer product companies, raw material suppliers, manufacturers, shipping companies, and retailers, each of whom plays an equal role in the supply chain. And the leverage point, the place that we, we want to uh, alter as we go forward toward a greener world is how things are done by all of these players. And fortunately, when consumers demand and vote for more eco-friendly products, companies will be pushed to develop solutions that satisfy their customers. But to get there, I think we need uh, what you could call eco-transparency. Right now, we have fiscal transparency for investors. You can find out all of the ins and outs and audits of a company, but we have zero transparency when it comes to the ecological impacts of the things we use and buy every day. But if consumers knew that, then they could uh, buy something that someone was doing better. They would, in other words, vote with their dollars for more green in our world. Scott knows a number of methods, methodologies, technologies, material goods that are right for change. So Scott, why don't you just go ahead and tell us about it? You know, my background uh, is very diverse. So it's like you mentioned, I've dealt with every aspect of the supply chain from product development all the way up to working with retailers and then post-consumerism where the consumer has a product and then they need to know what to do with it when they're finished using it. And that's part of the throwaway society that we have. And that paradigm has to change. And I think when you're in a wealthy country like the United States and the Western world, when you can just turn on a light switch and have energy or plug in your computer to the wall, you don't really have to think about where that energy comes from. And I think what, and I'll first start with the re renewable energy field because the renewable energy field touches our lives in every way. We don't really think about it. Like I said, we're kind of asleep about where our electricity comes from. I've been in renewable energy, actually I'm dating myself, but in college I put up a wind generator to power the college radio station. And it was as much a PR and marketing ploy too, because in college, you know, you're pretty idealistic, but I had to navigate to raise money, to build the wind generator, erect it. I got AT&T to help do that. And in a sense, I created a microgrid, a small community within the college community that enabled this windmill to be erected. And it stayed, stays my, that um, background has influenced me ever since. Because there's a trend now, you know, in the United States, bigger is better, right? And I think the philosophy within renewable energy is that you can actually be your own provider of energy in various ways. There are solar farms now that a community can put up that are called microgrids. And that uh, microgrid can be solar panels or a wind farm within a community that can delegate space to produce energy for its residents, which to me is very exciting. The second is you know, for an individual to take ownership of their energy supply by having a rooftop system on their own home. And in California now, it's mandated that any new construction has to have rooftop solar. The third, which I'm very excited about, which is my background is in consumer products, as you mentioned in the intro, is handheld devices. So rather than having solar on the roof, you have it in your hands. But in the developing world where there are over 2 billion people that still aren't part of a grid, for under $10, which is the goal, 
is to have a traditional, instead of having a traditional lantern or flashlight, that you could actually have a light where kids could read that's solar powered. You put it in the sun for five hours and you get eight hours of light at night. Again, small is beautiful. You don't have to have a big system. And lastly, the newest technologies that are, and breakthroughs are coming in battery storage. And it's not just batteries, it can be fusion storage um, and things we just don't know about yet, but there's a lot of money from investment banks being put into storage. So storage is part of what consumers need to learn about as well. So Scott, I have a question for you about all of the wonderful um, energy solutions that you see coming down the, the pike here. And that is, can they themselves become greener? Are there ways of being better about the embedded ecological impacts of, say, a solar system? And do you see that as, as another frontier for this sector? I do. You know, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges any industry has is to look at the supply chain from the raw materials. You know, fortunately, solar panels are made from the most abundant material on the planet, silicon. You know, it's sand, basically heated and like, just like sand makes glass, these solar panels are crystallized glass. But like any process that have to be refined, there are gases in the process. Like I found a factory in China that make solar lights, portable solar lights that ended up, instead of using a gas, uses light itself, like laser technology to form the seams uh, around the edges of the solar panel uh, so that the electricity flows more efficiently. Uh, so it's a challenge for the, the wind and solar industry, but there is a conscious effort to look at the complete supply chain to make sure that um, as much as possible that we're not creating another disaster. Because if I can okay. cite something outside of energy in that area, you know, there are unintended consequences sometimes when somebody comes up with an, what seems like an ecologically friendly idea to start, and that is like Patagonia, it's a great company, but look at what's happened with the microbeads from the plastic bottles they've recycled to make fleece jackets. They're ending up in fish now in our water supply. Through consecutive washing, these, they wear down. And that wasn't thought about at first. So now when I met with Patagonia, they're actually looking at solutions to prevent that degradation. There's a methodology, an off-the-shelf methodology I'd like to introduce at this point, which is life cycle assessment. That is a way that uh, anyone or manufacturer or retailer can look at a product like a solar panel or a Sono speaker or an iPhone and can analyze it in terms of its impacts at every step in its life cycle, uh, which gives a metric for us to think about what the impacts are. So for a fleece jacket from Patagonia, which is a wonderful company, the uh, LCA would uh, report that, you know, th this fleece creates uh, microbeads of plastic, which are ending up in fish, in foods, in us, and in the air. Uh, and that gives us a basis for saying, once Patagonia comes up with a fleece jacket or a jacket that doesn't have these, oh, this is the better product, I'm going to buy that instead, uh, which in turn creates a market incentive for other companies to do the same. LCA concept is spot on in ter terms of getting quantitative and qualitative data so companies can analyze their supply chain from A to Z. And that's very important. Very few companies do that presently. 
and uh, this push-pull relationship, their investment banks like BlackRock now, forcing companies say, if you want our money, you have to have a pathway towards sustainability. And an LCA concept for a company like BlackRock to share with their shareholders and the companies they fund could create uh, a scorecard for them to have a metrics that says we're on the path towards sustainability. We're doing our best. Nature doesn't provide us the easiest solutions. Technology takes time to develop so that we can know what best materials from the outside are, you know, that satisfy both the consumer from a cost, because usually people have to pay more for better made products. It's an unfortunate paradigm. But as more people adapt, prices will come down, just like solar. Prices have come down over 150% over the last 10 years in solar, and efficiencies have gone up. So when there's a market demand, like you're saying, Dan, it, it, it tells the consumer which ones to buy, and it also helps those companies that are making products be able to look at their P&L and their profit margin and say, hey, going green makes economic sense. I pick up consumers. I can still make a product. At first, it might be more expensive, but eventually it will be at par with products that, or below, products that are very harmful for the environment. And I wanted to bring up part of the life cycle assessment people forget about is the afterlife of a product. How do you dispose of a battery after it's used? What do you do with a solar panel when it's extended its lifespan? My daughter, who has a baby who's 18 months old, she buys all her products from a site uh, that... um, Mothers where their clothes are perfectly good and washed can uh, upcycle those clothes to a new mother who has a baby at the size that, require, that they need. And so upcycling both is different than recycling because upcycling is not going back to the raw materials and then reprocessing the material a la plastics or paper, but actually having a second lifespan on products. And that means, you know, uh, again, a, re- a consumer being able to accept something that's used versus something that's sparkling fresh. Uh, it's a change in psychology that I think people in the millennial age are, are gravitating to. These sites are doing very well. Well, this, this brings up an, another perspective, Scott, which is systemic. I'm thinking here of the strange fact that the United States and other very wealthy countries have uh, food surpluses among people who can afford it, but starvation or food shortages uh, for people with no income or low income. There's such an inequity, and it seems to be because of uh, distribution. We have the food. We probably have enough to feed everyone. We just don't. Do you have some sense of how we might tackle problems like that? Yeah, it's a complex one. I've done a lot of studying of that topic. It's not like we have a food shortage. We have a distribution problem, like you were saying. And, you know, I can just speak from my own experience on that one. Um, I, I won a Watson Fellowship to study desertification, the early stages of climate change where deserts are growing 50, well, 14 miles a year in the sub-Sahara where I was. But over, a, over five years, and you have a couple of billion people living in Africa with a lot of starvation. And one of my goals in working with the UN, with the Food and Agriculture Organization, and this is a solution that I can mention that's still being used and um, advocated by the UN is that as our climate changes, there are species of plants that can grow in semi-arid areas that can provide food, energy, shelter, and 
and stop the desert from growing. So as an example, in Sahara, I introduced grown jojoba, which is in a lot of um, high-end uh, cosmetics and shampoos and moisturizers. So, and it grows in semi-arid to arid environments. So by introducing jojoba into the environment there, it created an income source for the local tribes. It stopped the desert from growing. And it also supplied them a source of burning wood that didn't cut down forests. So that, that's a micro solution, like one area, and it's a local solution versus trying to um, export excess food from the US or Europe to Africa, South America, Indonesia, Micronesia. Because one of the challenges I had working with the UN was do you, especially when there's a drought or a tsunami, a hurricane, and people need food fast, that's one type of scenario where you want to import food. But my goal in working with different companies and governmental organizations, NGOs, is to say, what can you grow locally that's sustainable? That a, a country can, rather than having you know, a singular crop, like when Nicaragua is called the Banana Republic and there's starvation and uprising because all of a sudden they were independent from importing food, but all of a sudden they were just making growing bananas and they started to have to import some of the basics. So I think just like farm to table in the United States, there's a bigger picture application of that, of saying in particular areas, you have to have biologists and agricultural experts that can pick species that are specific, that serve the needs of a local community, whether it's for food, shelter, firewood, uh, and, uh, and a source of revenue. So it's not a problem that can be solved overnight, but when people adapt more uh, of that type of uh, local solutions, I think we're better off. And, uh, and the United States right now is very much a monocrop, you know, where you have all of Kansas and growing corn and things like that, where it's just not sustainable over the long run. And uh, there are treaties in place that can help move that food when it's still fresh or dried, but they haven't done the right job yet. I think just like the global climate change treaties, there has to be some sort of one that's specific to food. Think of food, light, water, shelter. Much of my adult career has been focused on finding solutions in those basics so that at least there's a baseline for people, a safety net, that they don't have to be struggling to get those um, supplies that keep, keep them from living below the poverty line. You mentioned that uh... Uh, much of farming, industrial level farming in the U.S. is monocrop like corn in the Midwest. Do you know much about the regenerative farming movement, the movement which says we can do it differently we, instead of uh, diminishing the nutrients in the soil, we can re-enrich it and so on. This seems to be one of the things that's hopeful for the future. I agree. There are young farmers in particular that are doing it. I, I can speak personally. My nephew uh, specifically bought land in the western slope of Colorado, which is dry. There, there's a whole movement there, and it's very exciting to see it. Scott, I see that's very hopeful. Uh, people within industries are waking up to the value of going green. Investors, uh, certain kinds of investors, but still investors are putting their money there. What I'd like to see is full transparency so the consumers at point of purchase would know instantly whether a given product that they are about to buy 
is the better product for the planet or not. Mm. And that's, that we haven't come to, but I hope we get there one day. If people become conscious of what their footprint is, whether it's plastic or fruit, vegetables, or any, all the packaging they use, we'll become a better society the more people wake up. Thank you, Scott. I think that you're right. It's a combination of change in mindset and change in uh, the material world that may make our future brighter. Let's hope so. Thanks again. You're welcome. Life cycle assessment is what LCA stands for. And it's a proven way of looking at the range of impacts of a product on the environment, on uh, the people who work to make it, on their lives. Uh, it, it includes everything from, does this include child labor, slave labor? You know, your phone depends on rare earths, as they're called, uh, some of which are mined in areas of Africa that actually have slave labor. And you can't have a mobile phone without it, I'm afraid, today. But do you know that? No, of course not. But the LCA would let you know that. It would tell you uh, what the carbon or greenhouse gas input or output is uh, from the whole supply chain of the product you're about to buy. It would look at impacts on uh, the whole range of global systems that support life. So for the first time, it would give us real transparency, real information about the true impacts of what we're about to buy. And that would be revolutionary. The piece to this that's really uh, exciting for me is it's one of the areas that's a very obvious example of how our orientation, our understanding, and our decisions create the systems that we then have to live in and interact with. And that's one of the overall narratives that I think is really important for us to understand and that I hope this podcast can, can uh, help us all see the different ways that this happens. Every time we buy a product, we are supporting the entire life cycle for that product. All of the mining that it took for the materials to make that product, all of the production, all of the um, processing that it took, probably plastics and metals and all of the transportation, everything that it takes to get that product to market, we are supporting all of the energy that it takes to use that product if it's an electronic. And then in the disposal, there's a whole life that it has after it leaves our house or, or our car with the decision to buy any product, we are supporting those systems. And so that's why it's so crucial to have all of the understanding and the knowledge that we need in that moment of decision to support that system or to decide, actually, this system has some aspects that I, even though it might be a small hardship right now to find a different product that, that will uh, do the same thing for me, it's worth it to me because I don't want to support that slave labor or I don't want to support that ecological devastation. I think one other thing is needed, and that's an independent auditor. You don't want to trust a company's LCA. You want someone who is like, a, you know, consumer reports, an independent agency to say, yeah, that's true. For example, uh, petrochemical companies will show you an LCA of uh, plastic bags that makes them look better 
in terms of environmental impact than paper bags. But what they don't tell you is about the end of life of plastics because they never die. They end up as what are called nurdles, tiny pieces that go everywhere on the planet, including into animals, fish, and us. Uh, and nobody knows what the long-term effects are gonna be because those plastics are made with what are called phthalates or BPA, which are plastic softeners and hardeners that are also endocrine disruptors. And there's no research or not enough research on how that's impacting us. I, I think there's a danger here of demonizing business or demonizing commerce or, or, or something because there has been so much suffering and the right. ecological, the, the human toll uh, of, of so much business has been terrible. But I, I, I think it's important to keep in mind the self-deception aspect of it because that's working for both sides of it. The people who are at the helm of the businesses, they're also deceiving themselves. They, for the most part, I assume, think they're doing exactly what they should be doing. It's the system that is here. And, uh, and so, you know, they're, they're achieving, they're succeeding within the system, but there's a self-deception there as well. And I, I just want to make sure that we don't attribute malintent to every, uh, every aspect of the system, I guess. And I, I, this even gets deeper for me because in so many ways that we deceive ourselves, it's not like there's malintent there. Like the, the moment to moment intent is often experienced as some sort of virtue or at least made sense of as virtuous. Like I need to feed my family or I need to uh, do well for, you know, whatever the reason that people feel they, to, to achieve this or that. Um, yeah, that, I've lost my thread, but there's something there for well, me. Let me. Let me pick up on it because I think you're right. Uh, this is not to demonize business. I think that commerce is good. It, it supports people, you know, the families that depend on a, a working member to make a living, to feed themselves. Uh, it's crucial. But if profit alone is the motive, without having an, another purpose beyond it, for example, uh, trying to be better about how we impact the environment, then I think it, it starts to spin out of control. And I think one way um, capitalism has failed us is by holding up profit as the sole goal of business without seeing that it, you can make a profit and actually help the greater good at the same time. And actually, to tell the truth, many, some companies, if not many, are starting to go in that direction. And interestingly, investors are definitely going in that direction because of what they call climate risk. They don't want to invest in companies that over the next decade or two are going to fail uh, because uh, consumers and uh, B2B, other businesses, are going to not want to buy from companies that are the, the worst contributors to global warming. Like other topics we've explored in our season so far, our relationship with our environment is super complex and multidimensional. When we were first thinking about this episode, we thought we'd talk about reinventing everything. 
recognizing that how systems have developed just isn't working. The human systems are hurting our ecosystems, which means we're hurting our humans. We're hurting ourselves. But then we thought maybe it's less about reinventing and more about going back to wise ways of being that used to be the norm and have managed to stay protected in pockets around the world. At the end of the day, our story is about how we can be more ecologically intelligent. And a combination of old ways and new methods can help us be better caretakers of the planet's ecosystems. In Act 2, first-person plural correspondent Gabby Acosta reports. When Dan spoke with Scott in Act 1, he discussed the importance of sustainable farming. And he mentioned his nephew, Jake Takif, the owner of Cedar Springs Farm in western Colorado. Together with his wife, Megan, Jake is creating a model farm that uses regenerative farming to build soil, sequester carbon from the atmosphere, and create more nutritious food for their community. I connected with Jake to learn more about what it would take for the United States to move towards ecologically friendly practices, a method that we know produces healthier land, healthier animals, and healthier people. Here's what Jake has to say. So my name is Jake Takif, and I'm happy to be the owner and manager, along with my wife, Megan Brady, of Cedar Springs Farm. And we together have designed and engineered and created about 40 acres of biodiverse, productive farmland. Uh, we, we've aimed to have it be as regenerative as possible, which means that all all the uh, all the crops and all the products that we make on the farm here are building soil instead of degrading soil. They're also building community. They're also supporting each other and reducing the inputs of our other crops. So we're uh, striving to create a model that's um, not only beautiful and environmentally friendly, but also highly productive and highly profitable. How is regenerative farming different than what the average consumer would think of as farming? Well, regenerative farming is unique because in my opinion, what's special is you're prioritizing the health of your ecosystem over your bottom line, for one. There's a lot of shortcuts you can take in agriculture. There's a fine line between a farmer and a businessman. And there's a lot of crossover. Farmers are business people. But when you prioritize the bottom line to the point where you're degrading your system to make a few extra bucks every round, that to me is not a regenerative farm. Um, a regenerative farm is really uh, committed to growing the ecosystem, building topsoil, sequestering carbon in the soil, and in it for the long game. A regenerative farm is the, the long-term effect of a farmer on the land and, a, and it being a good impact, it being something that uh, leaves that farm better every year, rather than comparing that to a, a monoculture, a, a commercial uh, farm where Every year you're going to see more topsoil gone, you're going to see less biodiversity, you're going to see herbicide and pesticide, you're going to see 
um, a lot of practices that degrade soil and destroy environment, uh, destroy quality of water in the runoff. Whereas a regenerative farm, it, it burns clean. Uh, you create a really healthy product and you create a really healthy environment to do that on. It all starts from the soil and works its way up. So you foster healthy, healthy soil and from there you start to see on a regenerative farm that your animals are healthy, your plants are healthy, your community is healthy. It works its way up instead of, uh, instead of just running it like a straight business where all you're looking at is the bottom line and you're bringing in inputs and you're spraying chemicals to achieve a goal. You're in a regenerative farm, you're actually looking at the whole picture and, you know, not, uh, you're not working against nature. You're actually working with it. This feels like it's become less of the norm, especially in the U S like, where does this come from? This, style of farming where does that come from where did you learn it the name regenerative farming as it's kind of coined today i think is a relatively new term for a lot of people but the practice itself is ancient i'd say if you look back in time at our ancestors and how they interacted with nature and how they farmed and how they provided for their families and their communities I think we come from a long line of regenerative farmers. I think that a newer form of agriculture, which is the industrialized agricultural machine, which, uh, you know, that's, to me, that's not farming. It's a way that people adapted to feed large amounts of people, but at the expense of the health of the people they're feeding and the health of the environment where they grow the food. So regenerative farming is, it's not a new concept. It's a, um, it's a very ancient concept. And in my opinion, it's the standard. It's uh, anybody who farms a piece of land, why would you want to degrade it? If you're a farmer and you're, you're tending a piece of land and you're the caretaker of that piece of land, it would naturally be a goal of yours um, to maintain the quality of that land. And, you know, compare that to a business model where you come in, you till, you plant your corn, you spray your herbicide, and you do it until, until you can't anymore. You have to, every year you've got to use more fertilizer, you've got to use more inputs to achieve the production you're looking for. And, a system where you have to you have to keep pumping your system full of inputs to achieve your goal until it's run its course and then you're you basically have to move on to another piece of land that's not sustainable and that's a very new concept uh, for humans because I think humans naturally want to take care of the land where they live with their families so in my opinion, regenerative farming is ancient and it's the standard and I came across it through working on a lot of farms and learning from a lot of people who had good practices. And even though a lot of those people didn't know the word or the term regenerative farming, it's what they were doing because they cared about their land, they cared about their animals and cared about their soil. If this is really the way that the land, it continues to work for us, it, like you said, it creates healthier 
um, not just uh, soil, our healthier animals, our healthier land and community. What would the motivation be to farm and what you were saying is kind of the unnatural way of doing things? What's happening is the there's a few people filling their pockets while at the expense of everything else. So if all you're looking at is the bottom line and all you're looking at is the money and there's, and there's a few people at the top of the pyramid who are, you know, really benefiting from that type of agriculture. If you look at it that way from a strict business view, there's lots of motivation to continue on with that type of agriculture, but it only benefits, it only benefits the few at the expense of the many. So even though they're showing a viable business model, they're putting the dollar sign at the top for the few and it's at the expense of everything else. If this is a, a form of farming that is harming so many people, this monocrop mass farming, then how do we motivate people to look at or maybe coming back to this more natural way of farming is is there hope to spread this is this a sustainable way of farming to feed an entire country i believe it is a sustainable way of feeding the country if you actually look at how much food is produced in a cornfield versus a field of biodiversity and running livestock and uh and growing perennial trees that bear fruits and nuts, it's hands down your biodiverse field is gonna produce more energy and calories than a field of corn. Um, as far as what's digestible to people especially. And it's, it's a tricky equation because if you look at what corn does, you can say corn, it's, act, it's feeding the world, it's working. But A, it's not digestible and it causes tons of health problems, not just because of the herbicides that are used on it and remain in the corn, but also corn traditionally was, you know, went through a process of nixtamalization to become digestible. That's how all native cultures that grew corn used it. So when you have corn in its form, the way that it's distributed today, it's actually not a food. It's not healthy. And if you look even further into it, a very small percentage of the corn being grown is actually being eaten by people. So much of it is being used for um, ethanol production and for feeding cattle on feedlots, which is also not a good practice. It's an unsustainable practice. So yeah, if you look at it, um, it's just kind of common sense to see that, it, you know, you can out, you can outproduce a cornfield uh, and you can produce a healthier product. Now, the difficult part is, you know, it's not so much doing it as it is, con uh, you know, training the customer base to support that kind of agriculture. Everybody is uh, addicted to corn in our country. It's, we run on it, not just with food and fuel and livestock feeds. Everything is uh, economically also driven around the corn machine. And it would be a hard chain to break. I don't think it would be easy. I don't think uh, it would happen quickly, but I do, I do have hope 
that as a population, people will start to prioritize their health and the effect that their consumption has on the environment. And uh, it might not happen anytime soon, but I believe it will eventually happen out of need because there's only so many years we can continue to do this. At a point, we won't be able to do this anymore. We're gonna run out of um, viable land to grow corn on, on that scale. And at that point, maybe the other options will become more enticing and maybe even more affordable. That's really fascinating to me because in our conversation with your uncle, Scott, um, he actually was talking to us a lot about the importance of re-envisioning the way that we do things, right? These things that have become normalized or easy, they, they aren't necessarily the right thing for a sustainable world. And so I'm wondering if in your perspective, this is an example of that. Is this the type of activity that could be more sustainable um, and how do we begin to change that norm? Well, what it comes down to is that people vote with their dollars. You know, people can go out and vote for a president or vote in a local election and that's good and great. But where I believe our most powerful impact is on our country is where we put our money. Because as individuals, there's no more powerful way to tell the economy and tell our government what we want than what we're spending money on. And if, and it's difficult, like as a grass-fed beef farmer raising heritage cattle on pasture, there's no way I can compete with the price point of a corn-fed feedlot cattle. If you look at a pound of hamburger at the store that's conventional versus a pound of ground beef from my farm, there's no way I can compete with that conventionally grown beef. And so it's going to be really difficult to convince the majority of people to vote with their dollars for a product that's more expensive. I know that there are a small percentage of Americans that will prioritize it enough that they will spend the extra money on grass-fed beef and they'll spend the extra money on locally produced food. But economically, the way that we're sitting right now, most people can't afford to do that. There's, and it's not a question of morals. I think a lot of people would love to buy healthier food and support local farmers, but they can't afford to, especially with the economic crisis we've been in. And so in my opinion, the only way to make this um, a, a level playing field for the small farmer, for the local farmer, is if the government were to stop subsidizing conventional grown, because right now it's not a fair playing field. If you actually look at the inputs of fossil fuels, the inputs of costs, the herbicides, the pesticides, the heavy machinery, the transportation, and the infrastructure of a feedlot, it costs way less money just to put the cows on a field instead of using the field to grow the corn and then ship the corn to the feedlot and then grow the cows on the feedlot. If you think about all the fossil fuels, all the input, it's hands down that just 
canceling out the feedlot, canceling out the cornfield, and just putting the cows on the grass, it's hands down a better option and a cheaper option. So why isn't that beef cheaper? It's because there are subsidies that encourage farmers to continue to plant that corn and there's always government help for this system, for, for the uh, process of growing the corn, getting the corn to the beef, getting the beef to the market. So it's not a fair playing field because the small farmer isn't getting that kind of help. There's no incentives and subsidies for growing cattle on pasture and growing grass-fed beef. So in my opinion, it could become something that is the choice of the average American to go and buy grass-fed beef and support a more sustainable option and a healthier option. But right now, it's, not, it's just not a fair playing field because uh, the, you know, there's the whole get big or get out concept in agriculture. And if you don't get big, you're not going to receive the kind of help and the kind of breaks that that big ag receives. And you can't compete with that at a price point. So I want to understand, make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. Is it that we've just built a system that encourages the mass production of corn? And if we could build a system that encouraged this more regenerative type of farming, that it could be more accessible to the average consumer? That's correct. If, if all of the funding and subsidies and help that is being received by big ag right now were instead to be used to support a regenerative farming movement, it would be a different world. Food would be healthier, food would be cheaper. And it wouldn't happen overnight because it takes time to transition that kind of system. But in the long run, we'd be sitting way prettier as far as health and um, like the health of the food we have and the diversity of the food we'd be eating. Because right now, everything you look at, if you look on the package of anything from the, the supermarket, it's all got corn in it. It's all got soy in it. It's all got wheat in it. And those are the three, those are three big grain crops being grown conventionally across the U.S. What if we were to transition that, um, that industrial model to something that was um, a perennial system? So you wouldn't need to fertilize, you wouldn't need to till, you wouldn't need to come in there and basically start over every season with a uh with a field that's degraded more from the last season um with perennial agriculture you actually every year it gets better and if you combine perennial plants with livestock you have everything you need right there your livestock uh you know raise fertility your livestock manages pests your livestock fosters biodiversity and your perennial crops bear nuts fruits and berries every year without the need to bring in all this heavy machinery and till and till and till and spray and spray and spray. It's, um, 
a much more sustainable model. And it, it sounds like too good to be true. And it sounds like a dream. And it's like, I think a lot of people say, yeah, that sounds really nice, but that's not realistic. And the truth is, it's how it was before colonial people set foot on America and demolished what was already here. If you look at what the native people here were already doing, that's what they were doing. They were fostering the environment, how it already wanted to be, which was a perennial system full of old growth trees that produced fruits, nuts, and berries. And it, the bison, the elk, the deer, and the other uh, you know, large ruminants and mammals that ran across this country and through those uh, environments were actually managing the systems along with fire. So there was already a natural food forest in place that was feeding an entire population. And instead of leaving that kind of system intact, we wiped it out and replaced it with annual agriculture with corn, soybeans, wheat. And we're suffering for that today because, you know, if we had left all of that, um, that food where it stood, if we had not annihilated the herds of bison if we had you know taken care of this of a of a functional system instead of wiping it clean and starting it over we'd we'd be looking at a very different model today there's no arguing that a perennial system is going to in the long run benefit us compared to what we're doing now which is uh you can see the results of it we're currently living in a time where we can actually look at what it's been doing and look at the health problems across our population, um, the amount of prescription drugs that are needed, the amount of people that are relying on pharmaceutical companies to survive. You know, I can't help but think if we were not eating food that was completely undigestible and full of herbicides and pesticides, maybe we'd all be a lot healthier. It's just kind of a common sense equation. It's if we were to take better care of our environment and take it would produce healthier food for us and we wouldn't we wouldn't be as reliant on uh you know on needing pharmaceuticals and healthcare all the time this is to be an incredible paradigm shift right like this is rethinking the way that we grow food in a way that it can work for us not us work for the system it's really fascinating and you've shared so much incredible background around the work that you're doing and the importance of why you're doing it. Um, I want to make sure that we leave some time for you to talk about what you're up to and how the consumer and how the listener of our podcast can support you better. As much as I'd love for them to come support me, what I'd really encourage them to do is find a local farmer and support them wherever you are in the world. Um, we here at Cedar Springs Farm, we're really committed to growing top-notch food and uh, developing a really beautiful environment that's welcoming to wildlife, that's welcoming to microbes in the soil. Our whole thing is leaving it better than we found it and treating this place like we're gonna be here forever. So we want it to, to treat us really well. And 
you know, this form of agriculture where we're thinking ahead of generations. So even though I might not see this system in its full glory, I, my daughter will. And we're thinking in the long run, we're trying to make this place a model of regenerative agriculture that can inspire other people to transition to this form of agriculture. And we love our committed customer base that really support our farm and love what we're doing. And I'd encourage you wherever you live to find a local farmer who has practices that resonate with you and vote with your dollars, give them your money and allow them to grow. So instead of spending your money at the store and voting for commercial agriculture, spend your money with your local farmer and allow that to grow. And uh, yeah, it's, I'd say that's the most important thing you can do these days is to uh, vote with your dollar towards something you, you want to see more of in this world. You know, it makes so much sense to look at the larger system within which we're given choices or not choices, the so-called affordances. So uh, the fact that conventional farming, which is far worse for the environment than the kind of regenerative farming Jake is describing, uh, is so much better for the planet and yet the other kind of farming, industrial farming, is what gets government support. That just doesn't feel right to me. It seems to me that we should level the playing field, as Jake suggests, and that would lower the cost differential, if not even it out altogether, which means more people could make the better choice. Uh, and I would love to see that happen. I guess one thing that I like about these concepts and this idea is that it is bringing conscious awareness to the, the systems rather than just uh, feeding the systems. Dan, in your book, Ecological Intelligence, and what we're talking about in this conversation is giving the choice maker the information to make that conscious choice to build the system that they actually would want. How does this decision ripple downwards or outwards uh, across the, the systems? And in fact, uh, this is a kind of vision I have for how uh, the free market itself could help make things better. If we had real transparency about the ecological impacts of what we buy, and right now we have almost zero transparency, we just don't know what they are. But if we knew it at the moment we're making the choice of should I buy this one or this other one, uh, and if we could weigh that along with price differences, for example, if we had full information, I think that many people uh, would make the better choice environmentally, and that would shift market share. And it doesn't take a huge shift in market share to get companies to think about, well, why are we losing market share? What could we do better? So my ideal world of commerce has full transparency rather than a blind spot about the true environmental impacts of what we buy. It all really comes down to value. What do we value? When we value monetary profit over 
the gain of our community or over the well-being of our ourselves or our loved ones or, or even over the well-being of people we don't know. When, when those values are not a part of the calculations of our economic calculations, then the system is, is skewed because it's a system made for humans, but it doesn't take humanity into account. Yeah, this brings to mind a, a classic study that was done at Hannaford supermarkets in Maine and New York, where they had uh, nutritionists evaluate everything on their shelves and give it a three star for the most nutritious or two star or one star. No processed food got a star because it had too much salt in it, too much nitrates and so on. But what happened was that over the course of a year, market share shifted to the three star, two star, one star products from the others. And the reason was that people wanted the healthier food for their families. And when sales reps saw this, they started to ask, the supermarkets, what can we do to get a star? In other words, it doesn't take a huge market shift to start to get companies thinking in a different way. And I wonder if that could help with the problem that Jake is talking. That's very hopeful, Pop, because what I hear when you say that it doesn't take a huge market shift is that any one decision we make has impact. We we all really do have impact. I know it doesn't feel that way when we're we're thinking about this massive worldwide network of systems, but we really do. Those decisions that we make are creating the systems that we then have to live in. Each of those decisions uh, supports that life cycle, supports that business, supports everything that that business has been built on. So we, we truly are supporting and creating the systems as we go through our world. So in any moment where we choose another path, those systems change. That decision supports a different system. If we choose a different path, different systems are created. You know, the part of the emotional intelligence model that begins to touch on what we're talking about is organizational awareness, because that requires a systems understanding. And we're talking about uh, natural systems. We're talking about the larger systems within which what we do is nested. And it takes uh, systems thinking, which is a different way of thinking. It's understanding the dynamics of nature itself and how our, for example, economic systems interact with that. Uh, how uh, farming just for profit, for example, affects nature, affects farms, affects land, affects uh, agriculture affects what goes into the air and the water. And so it takes a larger understanding of uh, what's been called interconnectedness. While we can all have an impact, the impact is exponentially greater when we come together. Environmental work can't be accomplished by any one person or even by one generation. Jake mentioned looking at indigenous agricultural practices as the model for regenerative farming. This made us wonder which ecological practices are new and which ones have actually been here all along. Our EI correspondent Elizabeth Solomon reports. As Dan said, 
One of the emotional intelligence competencies that really shows up in this episode is organizational awareness. This competency has a lot to do with observation, padding out and seeing how all parts of the system connect. When we're competent in organizational awareness, we can see who is involved where, who needs to be involved where, and how to build coalitions in order to get things done. One way to see and understand systems is by looking at them as constellations. In fact, there's a whole field of practice called organizational constellations, which looks at a system in its entirety, its people, its history, and the hidden dynamics that can and often do lead to larger problems. In organizational constellations, there are four principles, and one of them is inclusion. This is to say that everyone who is a part of the system has a place within the system. And so the questions become who is included in the system and who is left out. Danielle Ignace is a scientist and ecophysiologist. She's also an indigenous woman, deeply committed to fostering distinctive collaborations with academics, scientists, indigenous communities, and people of color to understand and communicate pressing global change problems. Here, I talked to Danielle about how the indigenous perspective has been left out of the systems designed to tackle climate change. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my mother is from the Menominee tribe and my father is from the Coeur d'Alene tribe. So I am an enrolled member of the Coeur d'Alene tribe, which is in Northern Idaho. And you know, I grew up and having just a really strong connection to my tribe and you know, Native American identity. The flip side of that is that I also kind of grew up in this, in a way of thinking about well, what are we gonna be in the future? How can I be a leader for Native Americans? And for a while I thought I would be a physician as my father and my brother currently are still practicing medicine. And, you know, in college, you know, I kind of went rogue. I really figured out that I was really interested in big environmental questions, um, such as what are the impacts of global change on our world's ecosystems? And at the foundation of it, I, I think about how things like climate change, invasive species, invasive pests interact to impact ecosystem function. Hmm. Is there a connection to be made between your identity and the general awareness of nature and climate and climate change and the land and the earth and various ecosystems? If we look at who I am as a scientist, I am an ecophysiologist and I don't know any other indigenous or at least Native American ecophysiologist. Um, I'm not saying that they're not out there, but at least I think at this level in terms of academia, I don't know of them. Um, and it, 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 either they're not there or we just ha don't run in the same circle somehow and haven't run into each other. We're starting to see them more, um, I guess, in other areas of botany, you know, ethnobotany, um, you know, agriculture. But for some reason in my particular area of of science, um, I'm kind of, there aren't a lot of people of color in general, and to find a Native American is is pretty rare. So I haven't I haven't found them. Um, I should do a tweet and say, are there any other Indigenous or Native American ecophysiologists out there? And wait for crickets. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I think another way to, I guess how I view that question is how does my indigenous identity impact my research? And, you know, it's taken me a while to kind of realize that. And I think part of that is because I've lived almost these parallel identities where if I'm at home with my family or we go back to the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, I feel a very strong connection to uh, being Native American and the tribe and thinking about everything that we're all connected to. And that runs, or for me, <laughs> typically has run counter to uh, typical Western science in that pathway. And so I didn't really feel a space for my identity in the Western science world. And so if you look at my research trajectory, things that I published, it doesn't typically include that perspective, that indigenous perspective. And that's really changed over time. I feel like I've come full circle because I think we're at a place where the space is finally there for me to include both of those perspectives. We'd love to hear about some of the projects that you are involved in right now yeah, I tend to keep my interests broad. Um, some of the most recent work includes um, looking at the impacts of climate change and invasive pests on a foundation tree species known as eastern hemlocks. And so I've worked on this for several years, and it's it's been a huge impact in terms of what we found when we lose out on this important tree species and what that means for climate change. And so that, as I mentioned before, that that has more of a typical Western science feel to it. It doesn't involve much of my indigenous identity or indigenous perspective. And now that's starting to change. And so currently I'm working on a big project to include work like this Eastern Hemlock project at Harvard Forest. And that's in Petersam, Massachusetts. Um, I'm, I'm like laughing a little bit because you keep saying that you're broad and your research, and then you're mentioning things that feel from my perspective as a non-scientist, so incredibly, um, specific, you know, this like a specific species of trees, a spe specific environment. Um, can you tell us about these new projects, uh, involving indigenous communities? Yeah, so if we think about where we all do our work and where we're currently sitting right now as we talk, um, we're all kind of occupying ancestral territories. And in that perspective is, has been you know, erased or not included at all when we think about what the impacts are for some of the research projects. And in particular with Harvard Forest, we're really trying to change that. And that is on um, ancestral territory of the Nipmuc tribe. And so we've already started fabulous conversations involving elders, the chiefs of the tribe. And so we're having these wonderful conversations about how to better include the historical perspective and the indigenous storyline and the land use history. And if we look at the museum there, there's a Fisher Museum at Harvard Forest. It has these wonderful dioramas that includes um, land use history and how humans have changed the landscape, but it really begins at the time, um, uh, colonial times. So it does not include the time before that. And so right now we're in this great phase of reimagining what that museum looks like. How do we tell the story of the science or the land use history of that place. 
And so that's one aspect to it. And we have this really great uh, summer research program for undergraduates and I'll be leading uh, an indigenous perspectives project for the 2021 uh, virtual summer program, which actively is going to engage in the indigenous perspective, not only for myself and indigenous students that might be involved in the project, but also for the Nipmuc tribe in particular. I hear you acknowledging that portions of history have been erased and that also that not all of the voices are in the room. And so that, you know, central to your work is making sure that those pieces are included. Um, and then you're starting to touch into something that in our last interview, um, Scott Kling spoke at length about, you know, finding localized solutions to localized problems, essentially. So he was also arguing that, you know, part of this work of climate change is, is looking at these microsystems, so to speak, and just really focusing in regionally, like what is the history of the land, as you're saying, and, and what is... Um, happened in those areas. And I'm wondering, you know, as you move your work in that direction also, while at the same time being, you know, pretty embedded in Western science and Western academia, if you can just speak a little bit to what that experience is of, of holding both of those pieces and both of those lenses. Yeah, it's not an easy task when you've been so embedded in a Western science perspective where you didn't feel like you could bring that indigenous perspective. And I think now we're just seeing such uh, an explosion, like so many people wanting that. And there are a lot of different ways to do it. Even for myself, I feel that I'm having to kind of work it out, work it out for my, you know, my experience and how I relate to other members um, of other indigenous groups. And so what's, for me, when I think about when I do my research, well, I'm at this particular site and I'm going to measure, you know, these aspects of the ecosystem. Those groups have that indigenous knowledge that is very much place-based. They have, you know, thousands of years of information and their own way of being in a sense, collecting their own data. And so those two perspectives can coincide. You can unify them, but there is no cheat sheet and there's no easy way to do it. And of course, what works for one particular tribal nation might be very different from another. I'm wondering um, if you can speak to a little bit about what that cognitive shift looks like for society at large, for you know all of us to start looking more closely around kind of what's in like a, you know, a hundred mile radius of us. Um, you know, we've become so globalized, like our economy has become so globalized, our marketplace, social media, like our attention can be all over the world at any given moment. And um, yeah, so I'm just wondering if you can speak at all to sort of what you see as an implication for the way society operates at large to be really place-based in this way? Yeah, I think it's hard in, in modern day society when everything is, as you say, so fast paced, everything is a click away and we want something and we want it immediately. All we have to do is go and buy, if we want a book, we can have it delivered the next day. And I think maybe that runs very counter to what is required to really unify the indigenous knowledge and the Western science. And that's because these things take time. And I, so I think 
uh, maybe the first step is to kind of like take a pause and realize where you are in your space. Like, where are you sitting right now? And what is the history of that space? I think just that simple acknowledgement can help just with that kind of perspective of taking a pause and, and thinking about it. And on the other hand, when we want to kind of move forward and with unifying these two perspectives, well, that takes time. And as I mentioned that what works for one tribal nation might not work with another and that these require conversations. It requires asking questions of those groups, how they feel or what they think or what they need, and then actually taking the time to listen. Those are a lot of conversations that need to happen and with multiple people. And just for example, myself, I, I can't speak for all of the hundreds of nations that there are just in the United States alone. Uh, and, it, and at the same time, I shouldn't be the only representative from the Coeur d'Alene tribe to speak on how the tribe feels about climate change. It requires talking to a lot of different people to get that perspective. I think this is where these skills of emotional intelligence really come to bear because it's all about being able to sit with complexity, being able to listen, being able to manage our own internal reactions. You seem to be really holding both pieces, right? Of like, where can I take a sample? What is repeatable? What can I examine? And I know that it will replicate itself consistently. And what is just like very nuanced and very complex um, and needs to draw on a different set of skills. Um, can you give us an example of integrating Western science and tradition, traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous wisdom? Yeah, it's, it's a complex issue. And something I should add is seeking out different perspectives of indigenous groups and taking the time to acknowledge and listen is that these are sovereign nations. And, and we talked about, you know, okay, as a Western uh, science uh, representative, I want to go in and, and measure these data points or, you know, repeat an experiment. And if you want to work with some of these tribal nations, well, who does that data belong to? And so if you're collecting data on tribal lands, well, that's a kind of a sticky subject. Do you have a relationship with that tribal group? And, and you need to start a partnership and a collaboration very early on in the process. There are rights that need to be respected and as well as you know, cultural property, intellectual property, those kinds of issues and being really respectful of what they might view as sacred, what might be a resource to a Western scientist might be something sacred to that tribe. Some various examples would be if we look at some groups like Western Montana, um, you know, and fire management, that's a really great example of how they have used their, you know, generations after generations of indigenous knowledge in managing these forest ecosystems. And so they've applied, you know, what they know about, you know, fire prescription and what that does to the ecosystem and how resilient it can be and how much healthier that ecosystem can be. That is a really fantastic example of using that indigenous knowledge over you know, hundreds of years to maintain forest health. 
And as well as we think about agricultural systems, you know, we tend to, in the more Eurocentric viewpoint, oh, let's have this monoculture and boost, you know, production of this one particular crop. And that runs counter to more indigenous perspective might be in having different ways for agriculture that aren't so, in a sense, devastating to the system. You know, there might be um, less extraction of those resources, not as heavily um, exploitative of the resources on that particular landscape. So it could be open grazing, it could be no-till um, uh, and on that system. And so those are ways of kind of knowing that have been there for a really long time that have been passed generation after generation. Yeah, it strikes me too that there are ways that have been built on the practice of like paying attention, you know, which is like another piece that Scott talked about a lot. And he gave the example of um, solar panels, for example, right? Which were like, okay, this is a step in the right ecological direction. But some of these solar panels are produced in a way that puts a lot of greenhouse gases into the air, and then they only last a decade. And then we have an issue of where do we dispose of them? Again, I think it's looking deeply at cause and effect in small moments and in larger moments and making decisions with reverence to that cause and effect. I'm wondering what else would you say is are, are the barriers to this great integration of historical knowledge and indigenous wisdom and this kind of systemic understanding? Gosh, the barriers. Yes. So <laughs> we have, I mean, if we look at history, it doesn't take a lot to maybe understand why there might be some issues of, you know, tribal nations and their governance and how that might, you know, run into issues against United States governance. And if we think about tribal nations and their rights, you know, as, you know, their tribal sovereignty that's really important to recognize. And I think some other groups have tried to form partnerships that maybe didn't go so well. And there are some examples out there um, <laughs> where some tribal groups did form, you know, a partnership with uh, scientists or academics or, you know, uh, some agency. And it didn't become the collaboration and partnership that it needed to be. And so rather than have it be kind of a meeting of the minds and think about a process and what works for both groups and what, what does this indigenous group need? Well, it became a little bit more of extraction, extraction mm -hmm. of knowledge or extraction of resources. So that can really leave a group devastated. And there are enough examples out there and they run not just environmental. There's some classic examples, um, uh, you know, the Havai Supai and the blood samples that were taken from academics at ASU, you know, that's, that's a very controversial issue, but that is a really well-known example of why some groups in Arizona might not want to work with some scholars um, and form those partnerships because, because those relationships were so broken in the past. And, and so I think those are real barriers that need to be overcome. What might be viewed as a resource for a scholar or an academic um, could be something very sacred for that group. And mm -hmm. those resources need to be protected for the tribe. They could have really strong cultural meaning and spiritual meanings. 
And that indigenous knowledge, if, if it was out there, well, that could be exploited and misrepresented. How can you make sure that you are working with that tribal nation, but also protecting them? You're speaking to this collective intergenerational trauma piece um, where trust has been broken generation after generation after generation. When we originally you know, we're sketching out the concept for this episode. We were titled it Reinventing Everything. <laughs> and um, and what you're saying and, and what we immediately shifted into after our first conversation with you was, oh, that's actually like a pretty Western um, way of looking at all of this, right? And actually maybe the better title is Remembering Everything. And it just strikes me, you know, we have this like, real cultural value right now placed around what we're calling like innovation. As we've progressed in technology the way that we have, we're all really obsessed with coming up with new solutions. And what I hear you saying is like, actually we should be looking backward instead of um, looking forward. And I'm wondering what is the risk of excluding indigenous communities, of excluding our history, of being so focused on reinventing, on innovating? What are the risks in that as we look towards the future of being green or you know, creating sustainable systems? Wow, what's at risk? Um, <laughs> I guess we, I think if we don't include the indigenous perspective, we risk repeating history and that kind of erasing the indigenous perspective, the indigenous experience and losing out on that knowledge. And I think if we want to have relationships with each other that kind of reconciles, you know, the past and then what we need to do moving forward, we risk a lot. We risk losing out on a whole group, um, hundreds of nations and what they know um, and, and helping to, I guess, heal a little bit of the past. Um, I think that's the biggest risk. I think the most heartbreaking risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, To get back to your point earlier about you, you mentioned uh, that maybe not reinventing is a solution, but remembering and I have a good example of how, how that's come into the, to the forefront recently. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2019, um, finally acknowledged in a really public way that indigenous communities or indigenous groups need to have their rights and lands protected and that it was vitally important for adapting to climate change as well as understanding the implications of climate change. And I, that was wildly uh, you know, published everywhere. And I think the, the overwhelming response from indigenous groups of the world were, well, yeah, <laughs> we've been doing this for thousands of years. Thank you for finally recognizing what we already knew. <laughs> um, and so this, this gets back to your point about remembering instead of reinventing and that, and that, well, maybe, maybe we had a really great sustainable method and management plan and, and coming up with an adaptation plan that has kind of been there for a long time. And, and, you know, we have our own way of collecting data on, on these systems. It might not be in the same way that Western science does, but that was monumental to me, um, seeing that piece that it was finally recognized. 
Mm-hmm. What is the response that you receive from the sort of next generation of, of scientists and thinkers and, and thought leaders? I'm so excited and I get empowered a lot by the response from the younger generation and the students. And what I think what we're seeing now is where I, where I felt that I had to assimilate in a way that didn't include my indigenous you know, background or knowledge or perspective, I'm seeing that they don't necessarily feel that way. And that's a very empowering thing. That's really important that not only are they seeing just as I am right now that, oh, people do wanna see that, they wanna hear it. And also, oh, there's space for them. And not only that, a lot of people are trying to create the space for them to do work and on you know, incorporating that perspective. Um, and so hopefully they don't feel as, you know, um, as I guess erased or feel as excluded or feel that they have to assimilate as much. So my response um, has, or the response to when I give talks and and webinars and get student feedback has just been amazing. I'm kind of blown away every single time. And and I think it's important. So that's, that's why I'm still here. That's why I'm talking to you right now is to be a voice for indigenous you know, people and, and, you know, indigenous women in STEM, that's, that's not very common to have professors that are indigenous women in STEM. So we, you know, I'm here to, to, to be that voice to help the younger generation, because if I quit, or if I get out of this, out of this role, then how do they see themselves doing the same thing? I know we could go so much deeper <laughs> and, and on all of these pieces, right? So I want to honor that. But is there anything kind of foundational or specific that you want to say or that we haven't touched upon? I want to make a contribution in a way that helps us understand what is happening with carbon and climate change on tribal lands as much as I can. And so I, that might mean that I expand the, the ecosystems that I work on, or it might mean I form as many partnerships as I can across the country. And right now it's going really well. We're starting this with uh, the Nipmuc tribe, uh, doing this work at Harvard Forest. And I kind of see the sky's the limit in terms of the different partnerships I could form. But I do wanna be part of the dialogue um, and part of the solution to how do we solve this, this big question of what's happening on tribal lands in terms of carbon and climate change and how can we help them better adapt? Native cultures, indigenous peoples have wisdom we need to pay attention to. They've had to learn how to live on the land sustainably. Every peoples, everywhere in the world, every native peoples has had to learn for their particular ecosystem how to work with nature, not against nature. Uh, Unfortunately, modern methods have worked in spite of nature, over fertilizing, over tilling, all the things we've heard about. But I think there can be a powerful partnership between science and native peoples, native knowledge, um, in terms of understanding 
the impacts, making an argument for going back to a native system, for example, because it's more sustainable uh, in terms of the actual impacts on the ecosystem uh, and perhaps finding methods from science that would amplify native ways of coexisting with the system. By the way, it reminds me of something I wrote about. There was a uh, system called wayfaring that Polynesian peoples used to tell how to get from one distant island to another. And they used no navigational instruments. They looked at the clouds and the fish and the birds and the winds. And they put all that together to go to Hawaii from Asia, for example, you know, it's boggling. And uh, it was just one or two people left who knew that system. And then there was suddenly a renaissance of Polynesians, people, island people wanting to learn that navigation method and keep it alive. And I think we're at the same point with many, many elements of native lore, native wisdom, of traditional ways of working with an ecosystem around the world. And we need to capture those and pass them on before they disappear. What it makes me think of are things like interconnectedness, just the, the basic understanding that uh, we are not autonomous individuals. I am uh, actually a part of nature and it feels like taking our rightful place. We, we're, we're pretty full of hubris and coming down off our pedestal and taking our actual place in nature, which allows us to function in a way that is helpful for us and for everybody around us, all the animals and the plants and, and the minerals. And, and so there's a, the wisdom of interconnectedness. When I do this to the world, I'm not doing it to somebody else. I'm not doing it to something else. I am a part of the world, so I'm doing it to another part of me. And that is a, a fundamental orientation that I think is really lost in a very individual-centered sort of a society. To learn more about the other EI, you may be interested in Dan's book, Ecological Intelligence. It uncovers the hidden environmental consequences of what we make and buy, and how with that knowledge, we can drive the essential changes that we all need to make to save our planet and ourselves. In Ecological Intelligence, Dan examines the mirage of so many products that are labeled green, and teaches consumers and businesses alike how to accurately assess the environmental impact of everyday activities. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Joya and Neve, whose voices you heard at the top of the show and to today's guests, Scott Kling, Jake Takif, and Danielle Ignace. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, 
check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Gabriela Acosta and me, Elizabeth Solomon. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes theme music by Amber Ojeda, Clean Your Room by New Alchemist, The Clap and Bang by Rhythm Scott, Moment One by Livio Amato. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.